So this morning, um, Happy New Year, by the way, if you weren't here last week, we'll give you another Happy New Year. Uh, We're going to return back to our ongoing series of Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Uh, If you're visiting with us, you haven't been here in a while, what this series does is we're looking at all four of the Gospels, and we're trying to piece them together as chronologically as possible to understand the ministry, the message, the teaching, the miracles, the purpose, uh, the resurrection, the ascension, all of it together so we can get a glorious picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This morning, we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, I hope you brought a Bible with you or you have some way to get into God's Word. We'll be in Gospel of Mark chapter 6, and we'll be looking in verses 14 through 29 this morning. This passage is unique in Scripture in that We say this series is telling me a story of Jesus, but in this particular passage, Jesus kind of takes a back seat to the individual known as John the Baptist. Now, this isn't the first time that John is put into the spotlight. The Gospels record that he was the forerunner of Jesus and Jesus' ministry, and so there's a time that, you know, it was about John, and we return here to find John's ultimate demise. Uh, This passage of Scripture isn't found within the Gospel of John, who was written by a different John. That's the Apostle John, also known as the Beloved Disciple. We can also read it briefly in Luke. Luke just makes a quick little summary of it. And then the Gospel of Matthew has a little more details of which we'll draw out from both of those two accounts. But Mark is led to give us the most details concerning this event of the execution of John the Baptist. And our focus this morning is living for truth. And what we're going to see is the implications of living for truth and also the implication of living outside truth. And we're going to look at John and Herod for both of those examples. So let's read our passage and we'll begin to walk through it. The word of the Lord says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead and this is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised, for it was Herod who had him sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him. And wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, but when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21, But an opportunity came. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And when she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, 
They came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. To start off, our passage begins in verse 14, referring to Herod as a king. This is actually an honorary title that Herod gave to himself. The Gospels of Luke and Matthew give him the title of Tetrarch, which is a kind of like a governor of an area. According to history, we can know that this is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. You might be familiar with Herod the Great. He's the one that set the execution of all male children in the city of Bethlehem under the ages of two after the wise men came looking for the king of the Jews. And though Herod here, King Herod or Herod Atypus, thought highly of himself, he's actually giving the authority or this position at the age of 17 uh, when the region that his father, Herod the Great, passed away, it was given to four of the seven sons. The Herod in our passage this morning was the governor or the ruler over the region of Galilee and Perea. His authority, though given to him by his father, Herod the Great, was still under the Roman Empire. Herod still had to answer to Rome. He still had to answer to Caesar. He would eventually lose his power in 39 AD when he tried to take even more control of the area, and Rome decided that they had enough of him. What's also interesting about our passage is the Jewish historian named Josephus also records it saying how Herod Antipas had John executed. But Josephus refers to it as a political agenda rather than what the Gospels point out and what really happened. But we have to keep in mind Josephus is recording history for the sake of Rome. And so he depicts John the Baptist as a rebel leader, that he was leading an uprising to take on Rome. But John's message was never political. All John preached on was God's word and how God called out sin for sin. And he defined sin by how God defines sin. This is what would ultimately land him in prison and ultimately beheaded. Though Herod is granted the title of king here in Mark, one thing she noticed is that in our passage, it would appear that Herodias and her daughter seem to have more power or more control of the situation. The events of this passage in Mark chapter 6 are actually a flashback. And what they're revealing is King Herod's guilt, his fear, and his speculation of when he hears about the fame of Jesus. One of the main points of this passage is Jesus' fame is beginning to become very well known in the region, and Herod was having a difficulty or difficult time understanding why all the people were so in awe of this man that was going throughout the region. And so Herod's conclusion, out of all things he could conclude is that this individual people are referring to as Jesus is actually John the Baptist who has been resurrected from the dead after his stepdaughter asked for his head to be cut off at this birthday party. So let's first focus on Herod and his idea of truth and how he related to truth and what we can learn from it. The first thing we see about Herod here is that living outside of truth leads to irrational behavior. We see this in Herod's conclusion. We see it in Herod's actions. First, Herod concluded that John the Baptist must have been resurrected because that, in his mind, made more sense than another prophet teaching in the land. For Herod, John being resurrected from the dead made more sense than another teacher emerging and speaking to the Jewish people. Our passage reveals that Herod had a great fascination with John. He didn't like what he said, but if you notice there at the end of verse 20, he heard him gladly. And we don't know everything that John said when he was brought into Herod's room or throne room, however we want to define it, but 
we know one thing he consistently said is that he would call out King Herod's infidelity. He would call out King Herod's adultery to his brother's wife. The reading of verse 18 for John had been saying to Herod implies when John would be brought into Herod's presence, he continually presented the message concerning Herod's new marriage and how it was outside the will of God because it was against God's command and against God's truth. Now, what's interesting about the message that John delivers to Herod is Herod is not a Jew. Herod was very fascinated with the Jewish people. He was fascinated with the Jewish religion, but he was not a Jew himself. And why this is interesting is because John reveals through his message to Herod concerning his new marriage that all people, whether they submit to God, whether they recognize God, whether they call God their God, all people are under God's authority. All people, Christians and non-Christians, are under God's authority. And this is why, in the end, all people are going to have to give an account of their life to the one true God. Now, the law that John is referring to in verse 18, where it says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, is speaking about God's law in the Old Testament concerning marriage. In the fascinating book of Leviticus, In chapter 18, verse 16, God says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. It is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, it says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. And this is exactly what Herod did in taking his brother Philip's wife, known as Herodias. Because of other historical documents, we can know that Herod, he had a wife previous to Herodias. He ultimately had her banished in order that he could marry Herodias, which eventually would lead to his downfall in history as his former wife's father, King Herodias, came and attacked Herod in 36 AD, ended up defeating him and banishing Herod and Herodias to the region of Gaul. What our passage reveals here is that Herod, he heard the truth. He, he understood the truth. Matter of fact, Herodias understood what John was presenting to them. And, and they continued to hear it. They continued to hear the word of God. But here's the thing. They didn't want to submit to it. They didn't want to live by it. So instead, they chose to live outside of truth. And this is a very dangerous place for any individual to live, to hear the word of God, to understand what God is telling us to do in our life or telling us not to do, but then we decide, well, I'm not going to submit to that. I'm not going to be obedient to that. If we hear God's word, we understand what God is calling us to do, but we refuse to obey it, we are heading for destruction just like King Herod. Even though Herod and his wife weren't fond of what John was saying concerning their marriage, but because Herod refused to apply the truth, what we find is he lived in fear. And his living in fear eventually led to guilt. This is the whole flashback. He's feeling guilty about what he did. The Gospel of Matthew says that even at times Herod wanted to kill John himself, but he wouldn't do it because it says he feared the people because they held him, being John, to be a prophet. We see this not only in Herod's reluctance to kill John, but again in his fear of his guests. After promising his stepdaughter anything that she wanted, which led Herod to do the one thing 
that he did want to do, to behead John. We also learn from King Herod that living outside of truth leads to irrational actions. We see this here in our passage, and we see it in our world today. The people who live outside of God's word, outside of God's authority, do not submit to what God has spoken through his word. They begin to create their own rules for life. They don't follow God's rules. They don't follow God's commands, so they create their own. They, they say what God has prohibited. Well, now we're going to say that it's permissible. We see it in our world today. They become just like Herod. They become destructive, and they don't submit to authority figures. They'll attempt to redefine what God has already defined through his word, that men can be women. Women can be men. He or she should be it or they. Men can be with men. Women can be with women, and people can say they relate more as an animal than they do an individual, and we can't tell them they're wrong. That's a Herod's mentality. That is a world's mentality. Children can disobey their parents. They can disobey the authority figures in their life, like teachers or other adults, and we can't discipline them. That's a worldly mentality. Groups of people can say, you know, it's okay if we destroy someone else's property as long as it's for a cause. That's a Herod's mentality. We can redefine what actually is marriage, even though God has already defined it in his word. We can redefine what actually constitutes his life, even though God says life begins at conception. That's a Herod mentality. When we live outside the truth, it leads to irrational actions. It leads to irrational conclusions. If people live outside of God's rule and his reign, they become destructive. This is where Herod is. He's understanding what God is saying, but he's not going to submit to that truth. And he becomes destructive. So what we see in Herod is a great depiction of understanding the people in this world who do not live for or under God. They make their own rules, and they offer things they don't have to offer. Herod, even though he told his stepdaughter he'd be willing to give her half the kingdom, the reality is Herod was merely a puppet under the Roman Empire. He did not have a kingdom to give. It was not his to give away because he didn't submit to God's law. He would willingly and freely give false promises. And don't we see that in the world today? People aren't submitting to God, and so they'll willingly and freely tell you what you want to hear, even though they have no intention or no power to deliver on their, their promises. Because Herod didn't live or under or submit to God, he found himself backed into a corner. There's something wrong about this picture and this passage here. How does a father figure deem it is appropriate for a child under his care, even though it was his stepdaughter, how would he deem it appropriate for her to come in and dance in such a way that it pleased him? How did he deem it appropriate? You know what a good idea for my birthday party would be? Is to have my stepdaughter, one who is under my care, come in and dance in such a way that it will please my guests. But see, he didn't live under truth. And that's what happens when people recognize God, but they don't recognize God as being their God. Herod saw his stepdaughter as an object, not as someone made in the image of God. 
And we see this in the world when people don't recognize God, don't submit to God, don't submit to truth. We begin seeing people as an object. Something that can be tossed around or thrown out and mistreated. Even though Herod enjoyed God's or John's words, which were God's word, because he was more attached to this world, he trapped himself in having to have John beheaded. Something our passage said he was afraid to do. He feared John. And so Herod didn't submit to truth. He wasn't driven by truth. He didn't live by truth. And the result is he lived by fear. And the opening of our passage reveals when he succumbed to that fear, he ended up living in guilt. But truth does the opposite. Truth, when spoken, is to lead us to conviction. Conviction is actually discipline. It's God the Father disciplining his children and conviction through the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't place us in a place of fear or a place of guilt. Conviction through the truth actually frees us. It lets us enjoy life and live life abundantly. Now let's look at John. There's a couple things we learn about John in, in living for truth. First, living for truth does not always bring earthly rewards. Living for God, submitting to God, living out God's word doesn't always mean there's going to be earthly rewards that follow. This isn't the first time John has called out individual or individuals in authority. In the Gospel of Matthew, John is out preaching. He's out baptizing in the wilderness. He's calling people to repent as he prepares the way for Jesus Christ and his ministry. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are these religious elite in John's day, they hear about this, this movement that's happening out in the wilderness in a desolate area. So they go out to see what in the world is happening. When John sees them, because John lived by truth, he wasn't afraid of them. He, he sees them and he says, you brood of vipers. Not quite the compliment they're probably hoping for, right? But John was living in truth. And so he wasn't going to back down, but he also knew he wasn't going to bring him earthly re rewards. Let's keep in mind, before John found himself in a prison room in Herod's temple or a capital or whatever, castle, he lived in the wilderness. And what did he eat? Steak, eggs, shrimp, locusts and honey. He didn't have massive meals. He wasn't out there preaching the truth and rolling in money. He wasn't out there planning for a retirement. He was living out the calling that God called him to and commissioned him to. John was the forerunner of Christ, and he spoke boldly and unashamedly, but he didn't live in a palace. He wasn't rich. Eventually, in speaking the truth, if put him in the position, we find him here in the Gospel of Mark. I bring this up because there is this worldly mentality where some people who are Christians claim and some people who aren't Christians claim that if you do the right thing, if you do good, what's supposed to happen to you? Good things. If I just do the right thing, good things will happen. If I just do good, good things will happen. You know what? That is not biblical. You never find God saying that. It's not Christianity. You know what it's attached to? Hinduism and Buddhism. That is a belief in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's called karma. 
But the Bible doesn't show that that's actually truth. You, you can't read through the Bible, and I hope you started reading through the Bible as we've begun this new year, and conclude that if I do everything God wants me to do, that he's going to bless me overly and abundantly with material things. That's not how it works. Just look at some of the main figures in Scripture. Noah, he did exactly what God wanted him to do, even though it made no sense to anyone else. And after the flood, what happened? One of his sons ends up being cursed, and he gives birth to God's enemies, nations who are enemies of God's people. Abram, or Abraham, did almost everything God wanted him to do, but his family dynamics were a mess. You look at Jacob, also would be named as Israel. He did what God wanted him to do, but his sons were a pain, and his sons were a mess themselves. Joseph was living for God, wanting to do what God wanted him to do. His brothers sell him into slavery. He did ends up in prison, he's thought to be dead, and ultimately gets forgotten. Moses did what God wanted him to do, even though he was initially reluctant. And it comes around that there were some who wanted to kill Moses, and the people that he led were a headache to him. Joshua, who succeeded Moses, did everything that God wanted him to do, but the people he led didn't always want to be led. King David did what God wanted him to do, yet he lived as a fugitive. His own son led a rebellion against him. And before, he, before when he died, he didn't get to see his heart's desire in building the temple of God. The prophets in the Old Testament, they did what God wanted them to do. Most of them were hated. Many of them were exiled. And sometimes they were left to die. John the Baptist did what God wanted him to do. He was homeless imprisoned. Eventually, he's going to be executed. The apostles did what God wanted them to do. All of them but one were martyred for the faith. The apostle John, the only one who wasn't martyred for the faith, but they tried. They put him in hot oil, tried to burn him alive, and that didn't take. They shipped him off to Patmos, a prison island. Jesus did everything that God wanted him to do, and he was hated and eventually crucified. So we have to understand obedience to God doesn't mean that God is going to make us rich. It doesn't mean that God is going to make us famous. It doesn't mean we're never going to get sick or not have any problems. Obedience to God, Scripture reveals, obedience to God reveals that we actually love God and that we trust God no matter what comes in our life because he is sovereign over all of it. And God does bless his children sometimes materially, But the blessings we are to seek, Scripture points out, are eternal blessings, eternal treasures. Jesus instructs us in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. John's treasure was God. John's treasure was God's word. We find he had no regard for his own life, for his own welfare, as long as he was where God wanted him to do, and he continued to speak the truth of God's word. The reality is we can see this today. When truth is spoken, there are going to be more people attached to this world who are not going to want to hear it. They're not going to want to accept it. Because the truth of God's word reveals that we as people are messed up. 
there's no one in this room who has it all together. There's no one in this room who has it all figured out. And there are things we may want to do. We may have a desire to do it. But then God says we can't. And so we have to submit. Or we become like Herod. Herod heard the truth. He enjoyed listening to the truth. He enjoyed listening to John. John was almost like this jester prophet in Herod's court. But Herod was more attached to this world, so he wouldn't submit or obey the truth. And got him in trouble. It got him in trouble with his new wife. It got him in trouble with his stepdaughter. It got him in trouble with his dinner guests. Eventually, he did him in trouble with his former father-in-law. Which means people may accumulate things in this world when living outside of truth, but here's the reality. They don't last. They don't last. Herod's second marriage was a sham. And his place of authority would be stripped from him. And he would spend the rest of his life with Herodias in exile. The last thing we learn from John in our passage about living and speaking truth is that living for truth allows us to outlive our life. John's name is recorded in the Word of God. This is the eternal Word of God. It will never change. And his ministry and his message is recorded eternally and even though John knew that he was preparing the way for Jesus in his ministry God cemented John's name in history he cemented his name in eternity see John's ministry outlived John's life when his disciples came there in verse 29 they came to take his body out of respect Later in the book of Acts, we're told that there were still disciples of John, even after John had died. If we want to make a lasting impact in our life, it's about living for the next one. It's about living for the kingdom. Think some of the great Christian writers or missionaries or pastors that have outlived their life because they lived for the kingdom. Individuals like Martin Luther. Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, William Tyndall, John Newton, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Charles Spurgeon, and one we may be more familiar with, Billy Graham. All these individuals have passed on. They're all in their eternal home. Yet all these individuals are still impacting this world for the kingdom. They outlived their life because that was where they were looking to. They weren't becoming attached to this world. They were wanting people to come to Christ and to know Christ and to grow in the relationship with Christ. All of those men and women that I just mentioned, here's the thing we forget. They all struggled with sin just like we did. They all were sinners saved by grace. They all needed a Savior. But they all lived their life on this earth because they lived for the eternal life and the eternal kingdom. I want to share about an individual his name is Jack Hunter. You may have known a Jack Hunter, but I doubt you knew this Jack Hunter. Jack Hunter was a minor league baseball player uh, who played for the St. Louis Cardinals. And that was his passion. And then one day, God got a hold of his life and his heart and revealed to Jack that baseball is no longer part of his life, but instead, he's going to go into the ministry and be a preacher. So Jack walks away from baseball. He coaches Little League but he doesn't play baseball the way he used to. 
He ended up becoming a pastor in a small town outside of St. Louis. Shortly after he became a pastor, my dad's father passed away. He was young. He had heart problems and health issues. Well, Jack just lived down the street, and he knew, I mean, a small town, so everybody knew everything was going on. And he knew that this was a, a widow now who had five kids, four of them which were boys. So Jack decides he's going to take my dad under his wing. He's going to become a father-like figure to my father. So he takes him to church. He picks him up, takes him to church, takes him home, sometimes takes him out to eat. He invites him to come play in the Little League baseball team that he coached. He takes him to church, and Jack, the pastor, teaches RAs. You don't know what RAs are? That's fine. It's kind of like the Christian Boy Scouts. <laughs> um, they, they build wooden cars. Anyway, um, he invests in my dad's life. And in that investment, my dad becomes a pastor. In Jack's investment in my dad, who becomes a pastor, my brother becomes a pastor. I become a pastor. Obviously, we're saved too. Our kids, Ethan and Abby, are saved. My brother's five kids are all saved. Our oldest niece is preparing to go on a mission trip this next spring. All because a guy I will never meet until I get to my eternal home invested the time in my dad. He was faithful to the truth, and he outlived his life. And he's still making impacts today. And I bet if you thought about it, there are probably family or friends or individuals God has brought into your life that have maybe already gone on to their eternal home. But because of the impact they put in your life, they've outlived their own. And that's what it's about, people. It's about pointing people to truth, loving people, to make an impact on them. And here's the thing, we don't know how many generations the time we put in will be impacted by that for the kingdom. To outlive our life. If we want to make a lasting impact, it's about pointing people to Jesus. It's about pointing people to our eternal home. If you want to make a lasting impact on your marriage and on your kids, live your marriage as God commands it. And love your spouse in such a way that your kids, when they grow up, they want to imitate that. They want to have a marriage like they see with their mom and dad. If you want to make a lasting impact with your finances, Use your finances the way God tells you to use your finances. And pour some of those finances into the eternal kingdom's work. If you want to make an impact in our time on this earth, point people to the creator of time. Let them know that there's a God who loves them, who created them in their image. They're not an object. But he has a plan and a purpose for them. You look in Scripture, John and Stephen and the apostles and Timothy all outlived their life because they pointed people to the way, the truth, and the life. Their hearts weren't attached to this world, but they were attached to the king of kings and the eternal home. Herod, he feared John. He feared the people who thought highly of John. He feared his dinner guests. The beauty of our passage is John feared God. And that's what made him a righteous and holy man that we read in verse 20. So we begin venturing into this new year. We should do an assessment of our heart. Are we living for God in his kingdom no matter what? Are we living for God in his kingdom and his truth no matter what 
authorities say, no matter what authorities approve? Are we living for God and his kingdom and the truth no matter what this generation says is acceptable? Are we found only in the word of God and the truth of God and living under that authority? You're reading scripture, here's, here's something you gotta, we got to understand. It's not always going to be the popular place to be. And not everybody's going to understand it, and not everybody's going to like it. But it is imperative as God's people, that's where we live. That's where we dwell. That's where we abide. The ending of this account in the Gospel of Matthew says, John's disciples not only came and took his body out of respect, but they went to go tell Jesus what had happened to John. To which Jesus withdraws from the crowd for a little while. The Gospel of Luke tells us after Herod came to realize that Jesus was not the resurrected John, he finds a new fascination. He wants to meet Jesus. That, that is his new fascination. He moves on to the next thing. He wants to meet Jesus. He doesn't want to hear probably what Jesus has to say. We know that he would meet Jesus in Jesus' last days as Jesus would be brought before Herod during his trials. The overall lesson we learn from John is as God's people, we have to live and proclaim truth no matter the cost and at times with no regard for our own welfare. The Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, they sandwich this event between the sending out of the twelve and the returning of the twelve to Jesus. It's a great reminder that the mission and the work for the kingdom of God is to be our greatest and utmost desire, even more than our own well-being. This is why we hear of missionaries taking the Gospel to places where it is illegal. This is why we hear in countries where it's illegal to have a Bible. We read of people in underground churches. This is why there are individuals who are willing to go places no one else wants to go, and they're willing to do it for the sake of their own life. If they would die there, that's fine, because they're pointing people to truth. They want them to hear truth, because they know if people don't hear truth, they won't get saved, and then they're going to hell. The gospel and the kingdom of God is to be our greatest desire for through it, people will be saved from the wages of sin. This was John's mentality. Jesus' mentality is also Paul's. I want to read from Philippians chapter 3. Paul's writing to flipping believers. He says, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, in taking this sort of mentality and living this sort of life, we're going to just present truth. We're going to call things out that are sinful because God is already find them as sinful is not going to be popular. We're going to be called closed-minded, bigoted, prejudiced, unloving. But it's the exact opposite. We call sin out because we love people. And we don't want them to die in that sin. The only thing that's going to free them is that they come to Christ. John's death here is a foreshadow of what's going to happen to Jesus. Those in authority and those in power aren't going to like what Jesus has to say. So they're eventually going to have him crucified. And it's a sad story, but it points to the gospel and the reason Jesus came to die. But he also rose again. That God created every individual to be in a relationship with him, including Herod. 
God wanted Herod to be in a relationship with him. God wants you to be in a relationship with him. The issue is your sin separates you from that relationship. And you can't be good enough to remove your own sin problem or take care of your sin problem. That's why Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life according to God's truth and God's law. They crucified him and arose again so he could forgive all sin for all people for all time. And the Bible says when we believe that God would love us that much and Jesus Christ did exactly that for us, he died, he rose again, that we can be forgiven and be given eternal life. The Bible says we have confessed him as our Lord and Savior and confessed our need for forgiveness. That's how you find salvation. If you're here this morning, you've yet to make that sort of confession. You've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. We have a time invitation. I'm going to be standing right here. You can come and sit in the front row. We'll talk. We'll pray together. We'll celebrate. But I believe this, in this day and age, as God's people, we have to stand firm in truth. Because there is a lot of junk out there. And it's leading people astray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, even though when, at times it's hard to hear. But Father, you continue to transform us and sanctify us because that's your will for our life. Lord, we want to be a church that's different. We want to be a people that's different. We want the world to be able to look at it and say, okay, that's Christ's bride. That's Christ's body. That's a Christian because we don't give in to what the world redefines as right. We know your word is right and it is true, and you are a faithful God. Thank you, Lord, for empowering us to stand for truth and to speak truth, and let us do it lovingly and graciously so that people may come to know you as their God. And praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.